Welcome to Remember, a podcast about building community. I'm Carla Salter. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening today. My guest for Episode 10 is Jill Mangaliman, Executive Director of Got Green. Got Green is a grassroots environmental justice organization based in South Seattle. And just for context, I'm going to share a little information from their website. Got Green builds community power by waging visionary campaigns at the intersection of racial, economic, gender, and climate justice, provides a pipeline of leadership development for directly impacted communities, and engages in direct action. Its mission is to cultivate multi-generational community leaders to be central voices in the green movement in order to ensure that the benefits of the green movement and green economy reach low-income communities and communities of color. Got Green is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. And there's actually a celebration on May 19th, which I will link to in the show notes. And Jill has been with the organization since its early days. I talked with Jill about the challenges of organizing a community that is rapidly being displaced and about the ways in which coming together can affect change. And not just from a policy perspective. It can awaken us to new ways of interacting and remind us to model the world we are trying to build with the people who are in the struggle with us. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jill as much as I did. Welcome, Jill. Hi. Hello. What does community mean to you? Hmm. Community is, I think it's, I think about it it's like um, like the combination like people and place. Um, like it's not just a place without the people, um, but it's also there is a place that's related to it. And so it's people that you have connections to, uh, roots, um, people that you spend your days with, but also are solving problems or taking care of each other or taking care of what needs to be done. That's kind of how I see it. So tell me a little bit about Got Green for those who don't know about your work. Yeah, so Got Green, we were um, founded in 2008. It's actually our 10-year anniversary. Um, We are a people of color-led environmental justice organization. Um, We're based in South Seattle, although a lot of our um, members, our folks uh, in our base live all over um, due to the rising costs of our city. Um, even though we have connection to the South Seattle, South Rainier Valley area, um, people have had to move, but we're still like tied and dedicated to improving um, the environment, the community, uh, you know, fighting for living wage, green jobs, healthy, affordable housing, healthy food. Um, that's our focus. Um, but we also really want to, you know, transition the economy to one that's healthy for people and the planet. So how did, can you tell me a little bit about the founding? How did it, what was the sort of spark that started God Green? Yeah, uh, so um, our founders, uh, uh, Michael Wu and Kristen Joy, both come back, uh, come from um, the like worker organizing in the mm-hmm. 80s and 90s and, um, you know, kind of came out of retirement to really, um, they saw, like Michael Wu heard about like this, this idea about green jobs and thought it would be amazing if, you know, the green jobs were um, accessible to people in our community, right? Like he saw like this opportunity of like, oh, opportunity of 
uh, out of poverty uh, for our folks. And really, we started out as a job training organization. Okay. I was in the second job training cohort doing weatherization um, work. And yeah, like this idea that we could create uh, an organization that was for and led by young people. And so it was really a gift from our founders to say, like, we want to um, like lift up the, the leadership of the next generation. Um, and even though they're no longer like in the organization leading it, they're, they're here supporting us. They're nearby when we need them. Um, and really, it is about building this like multi-generational movement. 2010 is when we made a, a, a sh- like a big shift from just doing job training. We saw that even though we were um, getting folks trained up and getting certified, uh, that there weren't jobs. Mm. There, they still were hitting barriers. Um, and we were like, we need to change the, the rules and we need to mobilize our, our people and build power. Um, and so in 2010, we had this leadership retreat. And I remember distinctly, we were like, we are going to start community organizing and start building up our leadership so that we can change things and, and make sure that we're removing these barriers and also uh, developing our own policies and developing our own kind of solutions for the community instead of like waiting for these green jobs to happen. Mm-hmm. And since then, you know, we've done uh, community-based research projects like the Women in the Green Economy Project and our Young Workers Project that have led into our campaigns around um, living wage green pathways, green living wage internships for young people. Um, and also the uh, food access teams work around closing the food security gap, you know, expanding the Fresh Bucks program. And, um, Tell us about that. What's Fresh Bucks? Fresh Bucks. Oh, Fresh Bucks is a, kind of like a, this matching program. Um, so low-income folks, folks on, on, on SNAP already could go to farmer's markets, uh, but we wanted to make sure that there was a way that they can stretch their dollars. And mm-hmm. so for every uh, $10 they spend, they get another $10 to match at farmer's markets. And then in grocery stores now they have um, they have fresh bucks in grocery stores, so you can also do that in like local grocery stores too. And the idea for produce, for produce mm-hmm. and healthy foods, yeah. So been, were you? What's got green behind that expansion? Yeah, we were really. I mean, we we raised the issue like, hey, you know, the through our talking with the community and our serving people identified like putting healthy food on the table for women in our communities was like their number one priority. Uh, but their number one barrier was affordability. And so how can we, again, like address that? And then secondary to that was uh, a food deserts, like not having enough healthy food in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so the push for people to go to farmer's markets more is like it's guaranteed to be local and organic. However, the, people have this perception it's also costly, more costly. Um, some folks actually told me it's not as... As costly if you look at like healthy organic foods in grocery stores compared to farmers markets, actually better to get at the farmers markets, but they're mm-hmm. also not always year round either. So right. that's why the expansion to grocery stores and yeah, the program of Fresh Bucks has been um, even though it was when it was um, a piloted at the city, it wasn't um, we had to fight to keep it and expand it. So it wasn't initially it was just like, hey, here's this cool project we're going to do. Um, but really, we wanted to ensure that was there for years um, and moving forward. And now we see it statewide and other cities around the country are trying it. So I think it's really exciting to get people to go to the farmer's market and to also get to know their local farmers and farm workers and become connected to that struggle, too, and know where their food comes from. 
and we do farmer's market tours uh, as well as cooking classes and definitely have lent our support to farm workers uh, who have been struggling for their worker rights. So I think mm-hmm. it's it's also just like building that uh, community education around like our food systems and again, who, who's putting our food on our table. So what, getting back to sort of the, the roots of Dot <clears throat> Green, what drew mm-hmm. you to this work? Why are you doing this instead of something else? Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I grew up in Seattle and um, I mean, I never uh, saw myself as an environmentalist or thought about these issues, to be mm-hmm. honest. I, I really... Like, my family was all about, you know, trying to make it through, uh, trying to pay the bills. When I, I, when I was politicized in 2008, it was around, like, like the elections, and I got involved with canvassing for a universal health care, and I was, like, brand new, but then I also was out of work and just, like, struggling. And uh, Michael Wu actually uh, called me and, and said, like, he had he had heard about me doing, like, canvassing and wanted me to come on board to help them do this uh, door-to-door project where we were talking to community members about energy efficiency and, and about the global warming. And I'm like, oh, sure. <laughs> and um, I got involved and um, I stuck around and I learned a lot. Like I started to see the issues connect to my own life growing up, um, you know, near the freeway, near the steel factory outside my window and just starting to understand like how our communities are affected by you know pollution, by this unjust system. Yeah, I, I can say I am an environmentalist now. Um, and I, I, I think like Got Green offers such a, a space, a supportive space for leadership. Definitely didn't see myself as a leader at that time. And just like having the support of community, of um, mentors, uh, and now wanting to pay that forward and, and, and support the next generation as well. The next, the next Tammies and Jills and Michael Wu's, you know, like we're, we're all about like um, building, continuing this work. Before Got Green existed, there was an environmental organization, environmental justice organization called uh, CCEJ, the Community Coalition for Environmental Justice. They were doing a lot of EJ work, leadership development, uh, anti-displacement work. They were fighting um, like incinerator projects. What what uh, time period? Was that was this? the '90s and until early 2000s. They actually approached us um, in 2014, 15 is when they said like we really want Gawker to continue this work and actually gave us their 501c3 status. And so we are oh, okay. carrying on that work because um, I think like it's not something like it's brand. I like to say, like, it's not brand new work. This work has been always happening um, in this area and in in our region, um, around the world, even, that folks have been fighting for environmental justice. And, yeah, I I, I even, um, like, knowing that our our founders came from worker organizing in Lilo, um, they, you know, that also, like, informs our our present as well, like, where where our our roots are. That's what's also great when folks um, come into a community or organization that they that they have connections to their history in the past, and it makes things less impossible. Like folks were able to fight hard back then. We're gonna we're gonna continue that. What do you see as the relationship between organizing and community building? Hmm. Are they the same, or does one feed <clears throat> the other? 
actually play field feet together. Um, definitely community building. Like we need those. Uh, like organizing and community building is about relationships and mm-hmm. how do we um, relate to each other and and be with each other in this world to take care of each other or not. You know, like I think like it's a it's a important component of both. Um, organizing is really about like how do we, yeah, build power and challenge the systems that are are, are pressing us are. For in the case of like the Don't Displace Dove campaign that the Climate Justice Committee is leading, it's about how do we um, hold the city accountable to stop this displacement in the city, but it's also how do we you know stop these unaccountable developers from like pushing people like Dove out of our neighborhoods who've lived here for years, and so it's like yeah, build urban you know like that that company just won't even like sit down and meet with us or have any regard towards like the request to like consider these uh, these proposals from the communities they're coming into so with community organizing you know like again like it's it's a way for people to uh come together and solve the problems but it's also the shift in the systems and the structures i also think about uh community building if if informed with community organizing can we can create the world that we want, um, that we don't have to wait till, you know, the revolution. We can actually, you know, we don't have to en- enact harmful ways of doing or replicate these systems. In, in our own communities, we can um, build new systems, new structures, or go back to traditional ways of treating each other, you know, taking care of each other. So, so you're saying within movements, mm-hmm. we can change how we relate to each mm-hmm. other, even within the oppressive systems. Yeah. Yeah, we could we could do those experiments. We could try, you know. I think even like the way that we do community, um, like community safety planning, or like when we're preparing for, or not preparing for disasters, or you know, just like in the way that we uh, look after our neighbors. I'm going to this like emergency dr- uh, response drill over at the Be- Beacon United Methodist Church this Saturday, or t- that's tomorrow. Um, and it's it's all about like how do how do we take care of all of us and our neighbors? Our neighbors are our first responders, right? Like even before FEMA, the police, all these folks, like the people you want at your door are the, the people who know you and who who can take care of your needs. And so, and and um, I think like that's those are these are already happening. These things are already happening. Um, and even like folks who come to Gakuri and they're not just like here to you know, do political work. They're here definitely to to build relationships. And, um, like, people look at, like, when folks are struggling um, or having a hard time in their life, you know, we're here to support each other, bring bring each other up. Um, like, even, even now, like, when folks are losing their homes, like, we have to, like, find ways to keep people housed. We have a network of folks supporting each other, looking for work, and... So it's not just like, oh, we got to win this campaign. It's like, how do we keep each other healthy and safe and and strong and supported? So I'm hopeful that they go hand in hand. Like, you can't do community organizing without community building. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, you're just going to burn out (laughs) or lose people. Right. If they don't, if you Mm -hmm. don't have relationships. That's right. So you mentioned the Don't Displace Dove campaign. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for you to talk more about that just for listeners who don't know about it. Yeah, um, so Dove, um, Esther Littlejohn, um, she is a long-time peace uh, activist, environmental justice activist. She was actually part of CCEJ uh, back back way when in the, their heyday, and 
you know it's just a wonderful elder who's again lived in South Seattle for years um, we learned last year that uh, her building had been bought by uh, this developer called Built Urban that uh, was trying to is is still trying to uh, build these uh, small efficiency dwelling units kind of near like a it's in North Beacon near like the international school so a lot of us were concerned um, when she approached us and that you know the relocation buddies was definitely not enough or sufficient to help her find someplace in Seattle she right. really expressed this desire to stay in Beacon Hill if not like in South Seattle and really Dove um, has become like a catalyst for other folks to come forward and share their stories around like I'm facing eviction or I'm being I'm a paycheck away from being pushed out or I've already been pushed out you know like mm -hmm. so people have been able to see themselves in Dove's situation and Dove has been on fire just like really inspiring but also calling for um for us to like push because before you know we had done this uh a survey and was learning about how people thought about climate change and climate resilience and, and displacement came to the top of people's concern the displacement that occurs before what people are, cur are currently experiencing right now like when rising costs are happening and they're their homes are they're not stable in their living situation but also the displacement that occurs with disasters um mm -hmm. unfortunately that climate change disasters are one of the big displacement factors and happening right now um and so we know that people are more uh able to uh withstand um emergencies and disasters if they are rooted in their community and if they have stable housing and so this is something that we're we were definitely, um, you know, trying to figure out how to what what can we do in this state that prohibits rent control, right? Um, and so, with the "Don't Displace Dove" campaign, not only were we, you know, able to just kind of like bring folks together to rally around Dove and Beacon Hill Neighborhood Council was really like amazing to come up with their they like what kind of development do we want to see in our city, like in our neighborhood? And they they came up with these five principles, right? does not displace if it does displace you know the people have a right to return and uh, family friendly and elder friendly um, uh, units or housing the, the next one is has community control or has you know work works with the community to design the um, the, the buildings you know again it really rallied the folks and um, we were able to get a public hearing with um, the city's uh, permitting um, department and just just you know trying to find a way to really have our concerns heard you know again building up more momentum folks are really um, rallying around this uh, concept of right to return um, ensuring that again like we've seen so many examples when um, developments go down go up uh, like when people like houses are being torn down they can't come back right Either that, the, you know, it takes so long or the the cost is so high or they don't even have that option, you know. And so I think that people are really wanting to find a way to bring folks back home. Um, it's like what we like to say, bring folks back to Seattle if they want to come back. And also are considering um, a kind of moratorium on, um, we call it predatory development that doesn't benefit people or the community around there or they can't people can't afford to live there especially the people who used to live there right. um so looking at like like uh, luxury uh, type apartments and unaffordable units 
So that's that's uh, some some ideas have been coming out of the Don't Display Stuff campaign. It's really exciting because, again, like we're all trying to figure this out. Even nationwide, people are trying to figure it out. Um, and we've been talking with people everywhere, just like, what can we do? You know, we're losing folks. And what is the current status? When is the building slated to be vacated? Um, and Yeah, I th- she's supposed to... <laughs> I think they're supposed to give a final eviction in May. Um, yeah, it's just kind of, it's been a lot of um, waiting and but also trying to find out information. Um, we even tried to meet with Build Urban a few times, but again, their uh, response. We even did an action at their their uh, their building. Um, they wouldn't come out and talk to with us. So. Um, yeah, I think, I don't know when they're planning to start develop, uh, the teardown and all that, but, um, we've been also, um, trying to meet with the city and have them intervene or help with, like, coming up with some stronger policies around protecting high-risk displacement communities. And you're right, it is a, it's a national problem, and it's, I mean, this pattern is being repeated in communities all over mm-hmm. the place and it feels like there has to be it shouldn't be an individual right fight but that there has to be something bigger that we can do to that's right to stop this you know there's the there's the you know the people who get evicted because their buildings being torn down mm-hmm. and there are the people who get evicted because their rents are doubled yeah. you know with two months notice that's right so one of the things that is unique about Got Green that I think is unique is that you're organized around a vision mm-hmm. rather than a particular issue. And just for folks who haven't been to your site, um, people of color and low-income families are exercising self-determination to create and govern resilient and healthy communities where they live, work, learn, play, and pray. So this is sort of the mm-hmm. vision that your organization is working toward. Yeah. And like most nonprofits, you guys have limited resources. How do you decide on and prioritize what you what you work on? Yeah, I mean, there's many ways that, um, again, like, we, we've been always trying to, like, I look back at how do we, what our process is, and it's always like, how, where's the issue coming from? Is it coming from the community? And we really look at the, like, folks who are, the, especially the residents in, like, South Seattle, or South King County as like and our like folks of color, low income folks, young people as like our brain trust, right? We go like again, like if we're we often have these community based research surveys and we go out and talk to people, um, we do these town halls, um, and if what we're doing doesn't match then we you know, we have to, you know, reconsider um, all our like a lot of our campaigns have come from our our surveying and our town halls, our door knocking, um, you know, and just like trying to again like okay, what are the problems, and then going de- even deeper like what are the solutions that people want to see? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like so I, the community basically directs what you do. Yeah, for the most part, you know, like and then we have our our leadership committees that are made up of community members. So we have our young leaders committee of young people ages uh i think their youngest person like 17 or 18 to 35 and so like young folks committee who are leading up the they like design the campaign around the green pathways and then um our 
food access team is made up of like um, families, mostly women, but we actually got our first male member. <laughs> um, and um, that team is looking at how to, you know, like how to close the food security gap and are really wanting to hold the city accountable to, you know, the to use the re- majority of the revenue from the sugar beverage tax. Um, and uh, and then our climate committee, um, again, like folks who are uh, folks uh, who are affected by um, housing issues or people people of color interested in climate resilience. That's kind of like that committee, and so they kind of like inform the and design the direct the campaign um, with our with our staff coordinating. Um, and then our board is also made up of folks who are you know again looking at the big picture. But yeah, ultimately, like we have to continually go back and check ourselves. Like, are we are we on the right path? Um, and when a, comp- uh, a campaign completes itself, like uh, the Tar Local Hire um, policy that we pushed in 2015, um, that committee didn't stay together. But instead, we went back out into the community and did another survey, and like, and that's how the young uh, young workers committee started. You know, okay. so it's always like knowing that issues come and go and they may stay the same, you know, or they may have changed. Like the displacement issue has become more and more prevalent in the last few years and we had to shift. It's interesting that you say that because just, I just came from uh, a conversation between Nikita Oliver and mm-hmm. Erica Huggins from the Black Panther Party yeah. um, for this conference that's happening this weekend. And she was talking about how at one point she was running the their remarkable school that they had. They had a school in Oakland that they ran, and it was tuition-free, and it was this wonderful right. school that had all these great outcomes and graduated kids early. And So when she went around the country, she just assumed everyone was going to want a school. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but when they went to different communities, people would tell them, well, we actually want a free coat program. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they had something like 60 community-based programs and they were based on people's needs mm-hmm. in the moment, what they asked for, right. rather than what we've, they've decided people need. Yeah. So. There's also like that accountability on us. Like after we go and ask people what they need, we have we have to do something about it too. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that's something we have to be prepared to to. And that's why we do campaigns and mm-hmm. and then try to like come back and say like, here's the results of that work, and you know, um, that's what our hope is that we wouldn't just. Yeah, just do things so like thanks for the information. And yeah. Oh, so don't ask later. unless you're willing to really do something. Yeah. Like yeah. And I think that's what what we're we continue again. Like it's our accountability to what the community needs. We have to fight for. Okay, so you talked a little bit about your climate committee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Climate change is such a big issue, yes. and it sometimes seems insurmountable. How do you approach organizing around climate in the community? Yeah, I mean it. It is it is such a big issue. Like again, like some folks may not see themselves affected by climate change, and really, it is talking about stuff that's local and what folks already can see. Folks get pollution. Folks get um, rising costs of food, health um, impacts, um, and I think like once we start to like create that like visual for folks like yeah when we talk about the heat waves and the talk about the pollution or talk about the um wildfires it's a it's a little more closer to home instead of this distant um issue that's happening somewhere else right Right. um we really localize it we connect it to like 
what affects families and people here. You know, I I think what what I learned from the climate justice surveys uh, that we did that people were willing to talk about it, were interested. It's just that it was as if they were never really asked, right? Like, mm-hmm. what do you think about climate change, or, or are you affected by this, and or like this, or have you ever, you know, experienced flooding, or you know, like really breaking it down for folks? And I think it is giving folks the opportunity, especially people like poor folks or people of color or young people, to have a chance to give their opinions about things. Um, and we do care about climate change. Um, I think that. Maybe not the climate change that, um, like, more mainstream is seen, um, but, you know, it does affect, like, when you look at the different impacts, like, people who are most impacted, yeah, they're, like, food, housing, health, um, my my home, my living situation, my, my family, the safety of my family, or people um, have connections to people who have been... Um, impacted by climate change overseas, right? right? Like our home countries. Yes, I was just going to ask about that. Yeah. Or has anyone actually been displaced from mm. drought or mm-hmm. something? You know that you talk to. We've we've definitely talked to some folks who have been displaced from other disasters, like Katrina, or mm-hmm. you know, like uh, have expressed like having to move here. Right. Um, and then like folks whose family members were affected by Hurricane Maria or Typhoon Haiyan. Um, and so, like, yeah, I think, like, <clears throat> again, like, the communities who are hit first and worst are our communities, like, um, poor folks, people of color. And so it, someone has a connection uh, at some point in their life or they are worried about it um, and believe that it's happening okay. and, and are worried for it. And something also that uh, we were learning through our process of creating these surveys and doing, like, learning about climate change impacts, we learned that often the places that um, folks are being pushed into are climate disaster zones. So like people are being pushed further south King County, those are flood zones. zones. Um, And so that's something we're really worried about. Actually, um, this area over here is pretty safe. (laughs) But we're, we're, yeah, it's becoming harder to stay. So I think that's something that folks are on folks' minds. Like the places that we're being pushed into are not prepared. Um, for these disasters or have the services that are appropriate. The places that are going to be affordable Mm -hmm. are going to be the places that don't have what people need. So we talked about this a little bit, but let's talk a little bit more about displacement and how it it has affected your organizing and community building. Yeah, I think what's hard is definitely folks have to travel more distance. Um, We have members who live in Lake City and Kent and Covington, you know, at some point we had some folks in Tacoma, but it was really hard to keep um, in touch. I think it's really, the distance does affect, but folks really are dedicated. And so we're trying to find ways to, again, like support our our members who want to stay engaged, you know, Um, whether it's like we started using more technology, like calling, giving a calling option, but in person is always better. We provide meals and childcare at our meetings and events. We also like support with travel um, if needed, like yeah, around like bus bus support and 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 even get gas cards too if people need it, like because people have to travel great distance sometimes to stay connected to their community. <clears throat> and really wanting to accommodate that. 
Yeah, and but folks stay involved, like because you know they not only care about the work, they care about the people. You know, some of them are still around. Like I would say, like fifty percent of folks are still like in Seattle, uh-huh. Beacon Hill, Central District, Rainier. Um, others are all over. You know, mm-hmm. like. Like, um, I remember one of our members had to move to Interbay, and I was like, where's that? And, um, and I was like, oh, there's a little neighborhood that's kind of near, um, you know, Magnolia. And I was like, oh, yeah. And they had to take time to get used to that area. And, you know, and but they eventually came back, right? They, they asked for a little break and really, you know, wanted to spend some time to get acquainted with their new neighborhood. And and, and that's that's what happens like, when people have to move, when people have to, you know, there's a lot of stress, right, when their housing isn't secure or if it's like, yeah. So I think that's something that's felt across the board. What advice do you have for people who are trying to build community in their own context? I think I think it's to find find a group, find a I think it's hard to be on your own, um, you know, just like being in it like being in this society it's just (laughs) it's to be isolated it's hard so i would say join join a group it doesn't have to be a political group it could be a sewing club a book club um just i think find folks who share um, values or share um interests and i think that's that's how we yeah and and meet regularly you know not just like oh let's see each other like once a year <laughs> like continuing to um build it means to like build that life together um and to support each other through all of this you know join god green <laughs> <laughs> yeah